0: Uh, Religion, commercial and political, all wickedness of the Antichrist is going to pour out of this city and God's going to judge it and destroy it and actually what's going to happen is the judgment is going to be so swift so strong, so fierce that the uh, city of Babylon is decimated. I mean it is totally gone. Just wiped off the map of the earth here. And so we see here that because the city is um, destroyed we have several people, worldly people, that are very upset that the city is destroyed. Not those who are saved, genuinely, but those who are actually living off of the city at this time. We're going to read a big passage of Scripture, verses 9 through 19. Just listen now to, there's three groups in here that are going to say they mourn over the destruction of Babylon. Babylon. Verse number 9, And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. The city was so uh, important to them. This was the hub of everything. This is, uh, and the, spiritual immorality, the sexual immorality there is talking about spiritual sexual immorality, but it's also talking about just this worldliness and how wicked this world was. It was where they got their elevation, their importance, who, who they were. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. They're mourning over the loss of this city. Their whole life was wrapped up into it. Then verse 11, And the merchants of the earth wept and mourned for her. "...since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearl, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls." Out of Babylon, everything came. Babylon was the key hub. It was on the river Euphrates. It will be rebuilt on the river Euphrates. That will be of the main river that everything will come in. Imports, exports, everything will come in through here. And the merchants, that this was where they, they kept all their product. They kept everything. All the warehouses were here. Everything that they sold, everything that was uh, able to be sold by way of the Antichrist. The Antichrist, he actually had power to determine what would be sold and what wouldn't be sold and uh, whatever. There, All this merchandise they had was there, and now it's gone, and they lost that. Um, <clears throat> verse 14, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste." Do you kind of notice the reason why they're really upset about Babylon? Yeah. Our ability to become rich is now gone. So more than just the city, they were mourning the fact that their job is gone now. Their security is gone And I love this. Each time uh, one of these members sees Babylon fall, they they have a lament that is actually recorded in Scripture. They're crying, they're wailing, they've got some poetry going on. It's like singing a little song. Oh, Babylon, you're gone. What am I supposed to do? They're all upset. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all those, uh, all whose trade is on the sea, stood afar off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste so we see here babylon is absolutely completely destroyed decimated and and the people that were living off of this city the people that were making themselves rich off of this are mourning because of it and it's not good um uh, business practices a lot of this was underhanded a lot of this was wicked a lot of this was wicked stuff and so forth and they're talking about the fact that they're so uh sad that the city is destroyed now what does this tell us this tell us that all of their trust all of their trust was in babylon wasn't it all of their trust was in i've got to have this this city and all of us again basically what it boils down to is their trust was in the antichrist you see they had no trust in god who was sovereign over everything they trusted in the false god and when they trusted in the false god when the true god poured judgment down well they were up the creek without a paddle, literally. Right? They were they were in trouble because their trust was put, their faith was put in the wrong place. And it's so amazing here what we see. The statement that it was within an hour that the, that this place fell in in the poet. Poetry there that's being used as they're crying out for, for this talks about the very fact that this huge city took so long to be built. We have the foundation it takes so long to get going the first three and a half years, and now it's flourishing and flourishing, this wonderful big city. That God Almighty, within seconds, literally or, or figuratively speaking, figuratively speaking, within seconds, just levels this city. No effort at all. No, problem whatsoever just flattens the city they see the smoke rising they see what's happening and what a testimony to the mightiness of God so we have those who mourned over the city but check out what happens in verse number 20 now we have number five judgment celebrated so the world is mourning over the loss of Babylon and then we see here that while the earth mourns over the loss of Babylon, heaven, quite interestingly, has a quite different response. Verse 20, the angel cries out, rejoice over her, O heaven, and the saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. He cries out, rejoice over the destruction of Babylon. Now, this is, a, this is not a call necessarily over judgment itself. God doesn't take joy in having to pour out judgment. But we rejoice in the fact that this shows us once again, as we've said many times throughout these past couple of weeks, that God is holy and just and righteous and His judgment is equal and perfect and right. And so we are to rejoice in, in worshiping God uh, because God is uh, right, righteous in his judgment. This is a call to rejoice because of the triumph of righteousness, the exaltation of Christ, and the re- arrival of Christ's kingdom on earth. So the destruction of Babylon has to happen. This has to take place, and we're going to see the total wipe out of all of this so that God's kingdom, Jesus Christ can come again, and the kingdom will be established. So we see this rejoicing taking place in heaven. And then number six in our notes, we see that the judgment is finished. Verse 21 through the beginning of 23 says, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying... So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of the harpists and the musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard uh, in you no more. And the craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you. No more. The city is totally devastated. Everything that they did in that city that was prosperous for that city is now laid to waste. Nothing will happen. That's why everybody mourned over the city. The the lengthy list that's given here of what is destroyed declares the absolute and complete destruction of this city and the fact that the city will never ever return again. Totally wiped out. So the city is not simply destroyed by God, it is literally wiped off the map, never ever to be returned. And the last part of verse 23 there uh, gives us uh, number seven here, the judgment warranted. And so we see here at the last part of verse 23, and all nations were deceived by your... Let me, let me go up here. For the, let me just read verse 23. It'll be easier. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophetess of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Babylon, the point being made here, Babylon earned her destruction she earned it because of how wicked she was how horrible she was all right um the the because of the merchants they obtained great wealth and power through babylon the sorcery that was their false religion that came out of there and the murderous nature toward true believers of those who were believers that died there so god is absolutely just in destroying this city so as we've seen in these two chapters here, Babylon is the center for which false religion comes out. Babylon, the city, will be rebuilt. It'll be a, a, the capital of the Antichrist world. All a false, everything of the Antichrist will come out of there. And then God will step in and God will destroy Babylon, destroy the people, destroy the city, totally wipe it out, totally destroy it. And this sets us up now for the second coming of Christ. So, before we go on, any questions on Babylon there? Mike. <clears throat> it, it could be. Could, could it be symbolism for something else, or, or could it be a symbol of a, of a country? It, it absolutely could be. Um, so, the idea here of Babylon is that it is actually a place. Now, just because it's called Babylon doesn't have to mean that it's actually uh, that, that city. Although, I'm leaning, to, I'm leaning towards more that this is actually that city, Babylon. Because as we talked about last time, that Babylon has already been rebuilt by uh, Saddam Hussein. And they'll build up from, from there. So, I actually think that's going to be it. But, I don't want to take away the idea that you're, it's true. Yeah, I mean, you know, if we had a, a country that was that, well, America could fall into a lot of this stuff, couldn't it? So, you know, I can, I can see that uh, there. So, you know, again, that's one of those things we'll know if we're paying attention at that point. But I don't even think we'll be paying attention. So, <laughs> there, Nate. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, I, I think that's kind of a picture of, um, you know, also people giving in marriage and and stuff like that. But yeah, it's also false religion that's there. Uh, All of that, all of that all wrapped up into it, yeah. So I, I would agree with that, absolutely. Ron. So, uh, were the people of Babylon destroyed? Some would have been, sure, uh, within the destruction of the city. This is more talking about the city, not the people of the city. Uh, So, you know, where they were destroyed is those that lived in the city were destroyed because their livelihood was completely gone uh, there and stuff like that. As we get into chapter number 19, we'll deal more with the people that are on the earth and what happens to the lost there and what we will see. So they'll coincide with that. So as far as the destruction goes, this is more just focused on the city. Not necessarily the people of the city. The system there, if you will, of Babylon. The political and commercial system uh, and the religious Babylon is what that's talking about the most there. But yeah, if the city's actually destroyed, I'm sure there will be death and carnage as a part of all of that as well. Yep, absolutely. Good questions. Anything else? All right, so we move from the city Babylon now, and we move into chapter 19. And when we come to chapter 19, for us to get a kind of a picture of where we are chronologically, the seven-year, we have completely walked through the entire seven-year period, okay? All 21 judgments of God have been poured out on the earth. We've seen the destruction of all forms of Babylon, religious, political, and commercial, uh, and the city, actual city destroyed. So we are chronologically at the very end of the tribulation period and right before the second coming of Christ. So your first blank there is Revelation 19. And as we begin chapter 19, John is given a new vision. Uh, Like many others, it begins with what John hears before what John sees. Here's another loud voice. However, it is not simply one voice, but a great multitude of voices That he hears. And what's so amazing about this in chapter 19 at the beginning of this, what John hears is the wonderful crescendo of rejoicing and praising in heaven. The heavenly chorus of Everyone in heaven praising God for who he is and worshiping him. Heaven is rejoicing because history is at an end. The second coming of Christ is on the horizon. All of the sinners on the earth, all of the lost will be removed from the earth. And the king will come and establish his kingdom on earth. So as we move through this chapter, there are really two main sections that we're going to break this up into. The first is the reason for heaven's joy. That's chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And the second is we're going to see Christ's glorious second coming in verses 11 through 21. And I hope and pray we can get through this uh, chapter today. So number one in your notes is the joy of heaven, verses 1 through 10. Joy of heaven. We see in verse number one here. That after this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now as we go through this, we're going to see this word hallelujah four times. There's four hallelujahs in here, breaking it up into four different uh, things there. And the first thing that we see here is that with Babylon gone, he hears this voice, uh, there he, he hears this multitude. And so the question is, who is this multitude of, angel, uh, of, of people singing? And I believe it's the angels of heaven. At this point, it's just the angels of heaven. The reason why, when we get down to verse number 5, we're going to see that another group is going to be added to this. And and I believe that will be the church saints. We'll put that in there when we get there. But we have the angelic chorus, the angels of heaven, with an explanation of praise, singing hallelujah. Now the word hallelujah is a cool word because it is made up of the Hebrew word. To translate it into Greek, you had to take two Greek words to make the one Hebrew word for hallelujah. And what they were was uh, the Greek is the verb to praise and the noun for God. So hallelujah, and if you ever say hallelujah or you sing hallelujah or if you sing the hallelujah chorus, just so that you know, it means to praise God. That's what it means. That's what hallelujah means, to praise God, all right? Uh, so, you know, and even when you say praise the Lord, you're, you're really saying hallelujah is what, you're, is what you're saying. So go either way with that. All right, So this praise breaks out in heaven as the angels praise God. And what are they praising Him for? For salvation has come to His people. Now, this is very interesting as you study this out, what, what they're talking about here. Along with the fact that God's glory and power have been put on display and they've just washed it as Babylon has, has fallen, salvation in this context is referring to the third phase of salvation. Did you know that you have three phases to salvation? Some of you are looking at me like, "Ah, no, I don't know. I didn't know that." Okay, yeah, maybe. All right. The second you're saved, two of them happen here on earth, and one happens in heaven. And, and you'll know this once, once I say it. I'm sure. The first, the first thing that happens when we call on Christ for salvation, we're justified. You've heard of justification. Uh, just as if you've never sinned is what that means it means that legally because we are washed in the shed blood of Jesus Christ when God looks at us he looks at us through the washing of the blood of Jesus Christ and he looks at us as saints not sinners he looks at us as we've not sinned but we are washed cleansed clean with the blood of Christ so that's justification that's phase one the second phase happens right immediately after justification and that's called sanctification that's our walk with the Lord that is where we continue to grow in the Lord we, we, we make mistakes, we ask forgiveness, we keep our relationship going, we grow, and we walk in our sanctification all the way through till the day that we leave the earth. or the Lord comes back uh, there. And then at this point here, uh, those who have been have a glorified body, who are in heaven and stuff like that are in the state of glorification. And so the angels are praising, God, because now they are stating the fact that we as believers, those of us who are in heaven, those of us who have been saved, are at the point of glorification. Glorification uh, is literally perfection. Right? No sin, no wrong thoughts, no overeating, none of that stuff, right? Uh no temptation. right, we are in the presence of God for heaven, we are in the state of glorification. And so we are glorified in heaven. It is this third aspect of salvation that the angels are rejoicing over along with the eager anticipation of the second coming. Of Christ, So the angels cry out, and that, this is what they're praising. And then the second thing, so we see here glorification, um, they're rejoicing because glorification has come. Now we see that they're also worshiping because righteous justice has been given. Look at verse number 2. It continues on with the song that they're singing. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So who's the great prostitute? Do you remember? It is Babylon. Very good. All right. Awesome. All right. You get an extra star tonight, Nathan. Good job. Uh, Nate, good job. All right. Rejoicing continues because God's judgments are true. And just again, God is the righteous, holy judge. There's never a time that we can look at the judgments of God and go, "Oh my goodness, that's a little bit too much." I don't, I don't know because God doesn't go too much; He doesn't go too little. He is perfect in His uh, judgments. All right, He's he's wiped out the great prostitute Babylon, um, and the complete destruction of Babylon is testimony of the righteous judgment of God. All right, so perfectly balanced. The judgment of God is perfectly balanced with the wickedness of of Babylon and his righteous judgment. This rejoicing is right and confirms the perfect holy judgment of God. So that's what they're saying here. They are confirming, the angels are confirming and praising God because uh, those who are in heaven are are saved at the point of glorification and God's judgment is absolutely perfect and right. And then they continue uh, rejoicing because uh, of the end of rebellion in verse number 3. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. This is a statement again of Babylon being destroyed. And the idea of the smoke going up forever and ever means that she will never return. The rebellion of Babylon is absolutely completely destroyed. Never to come back uh, again. All right. Uh, This is our second hallelujah that we saw. Uh, And while the sinful world mourned over the loss of Babylon, heaven greatly rejoices as the smoke rises forever and ever. The statement is powerful as it shows not only that the city is destroyed, but that its destruction is irreversible. John MacArthur, uh, in his book, uh, Because the Time is Near, said this, "...the destruction of the last and most powerful empire in human history marks the end of human rule. The rebellion that began in the Garden of Eden is finally ended." except for the small revolt that will take place in the Millennial kingdom, and we'll see that when we get there. There will be no more false religion. There will be no more injustice. The sin that started it all in the Garden of Eden, that has gone all the way through that we're living today and will live until the Lord returns and all of this takes place, is now done on the earth. It is gone. It is wiped away. Uh, his justice is done So we see here that they praise them for the end of rebellion. And then number four in our notes here on page three, uh, they rejoice for the sovereign control of God. The third hallelujah is sung here. And we see in the 24 elders and the four living creatures. Now, remember we have the angels. Now we have the 24 elders and the living creatures join in in worshiping God, who are seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Uh, And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you uh, his servants, uh, you who fear him small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder crying out, and then we'll see what they cry out here in a second. We have the third hallelujah ring out, the 24 elders and the four living creatures join in and worshiping. And then we hear a voice from uh, around the throne of God. This is more than likely not the voice of God because the voice that that, what it commands is that everyone else now join in in worshiping God. Okay, so it's God not saying worship me, but He's saying now everyone else. And what He says here is He commands all those who fear God To praise and worship him. So after this command, John hears what he describes as a roar of many waters like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Basically, this is a picture of the fact of the magnitude of all of the voices of heaven praising God. So what we have here now praising God is we have all of the angels of heaven, myriads upon myriads of angels, can't be counted. We have the 24 elders and the four living creatures added into this. And then we have all of the redeemed of heaven. That's us. That's us joining in and praising God as one magnificent, glorious chorus. Now, don't worry about it. You'll be glorified, so you'll sing on key, (laughs) right? You'll be in your new body, all right? You'll be able to, you you know, it'll be great, all right? And the motive of this worship is that the Lord our God, the Almighty, Reigns. Look at what they say, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. They, they, uh, he's going to reign forever and forever. The Lord our God reigns. Would you think about this for a moment? If we're saved today, if you know the Lord is your personal Savior, we get to sing from the top of our voice that our God reigns. I can say because I'm a child of God. My God reigns. And so just remember that when we sing in church, that's just getting your vocals warmed up for when we get here, right? Ready to go. But you won't have to worry about it because you'll be, like I said, in your glorified body, it'll it'll be good. So here's the point. The evil of the world system right here is gone. Wiped away. Heaven is rejoicing. Because now the kingdom of Christ has come in its fullness. But yet, the rejoicing is still not done. Because the fifth thing that they rejoice for, we see in verses 7 through 10, is the completion of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse number 7: Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers You hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We see several things happening here now. The multitude now announces the marriage of the Lamb, and that his bride has made herself ready. The marriage of a couple in biblical times was the greatest celebration and the greatest social event of that day. If you knew of a couple that was getting married, it was a highlight, and you were there at the party. (laughs) It was an important social event, all right? When the marriage took place in biblical times, there were three steps to the marriage. There was the betrothal time, which you have heard before with uh, Joseph and Mary. Remember, they were betrothed to each other uh, there. That's the marriage contract. There's the presentation and festivities that take place, and then there's the marriage supper feast. Uh, <clears throat> The contract was usually arranged by the parents. There was usually uh, um, parental uh, marriage arrangements that took place. Sometimes it did, sometimes it wasn't. Um, and there was a legal, it was legally binding, meaning this, that when the contract was made between the father of the, one, of the, of the groom and the father of the bride, that was it. You guys are legally joined together. You cannot uh, have sex. You cannot be together that way, but you're engaged, uh, you, and the marriage isn't final yet. But if you're going to leave that marriage, the only way you're going to do that is if there's a huge problem and you get an actual legal divorce to get away uh, from that. And if there's a problem with infidelity, remember we saw with uh, Joseph and Mary in the, uh, in the New Testament story of the birth of Christ that one of the options was is that if they were unfaithful, well, they could be stoned. As well, put to the death there, or put away privately, is what Joseph was trying to figure out there. But the only way you could end this contract of this betrothal was by the way of uh, a legal divorce after the contract the groom would go off and he'd prepare himself a place for he and his new new wife usually it took about a year he had to wait till the father gave him permission to come back to come and get his bride so he would go and usually what would happen is they would uh, build a room onto their house uh, what the groom would build a room onto the father's house or have a piece of, uh, on a piece of property there or something along those lines and would get that all ready and then once he had it ready, and had it satisfactory, and had it to the satisfactory of his father. And his father wanted to make sure that his son wasn't a slob and brought his new wife home doing something pretty nice, right? So he made sure it was done right and everything was built right and stuff like that. Then when the father gave permission, then the groom would go and get his bride. And when the groom went to go and get the bride, the bride had to be ready, had to be uh, waiting, uh, had to be waiting with the bridesmaids. Uh, ready to go so that any time that he comes day or night he could come and come and get her and then he would come with his friends they would the groom would and they'd come and get the bride and the bridesmaid and they'd have a kind of a parade through town and pick up all the guests that were going to be coming along with that they would get to the uh, ceremony there and they would have the presentation of the bride and the ceremony would take place and the festivities would take place that could take up to seven days Uh, there of that and then uh, when that was finished they had the final marriage supper feast and then after that they would consummate the marriage and and go on uh, living as husband uh, and wife that was the ceremony that was that took place okay now with that scripture has used that wedding ceremony to be a picture of the church in Christ many times all the way through scriptures and so the ceremony uh, is a metaphor between Christ and the church. So the church, as we know, is the bride of Christ. Christ is the groom here. And what we see here is that we will be celebrating the marriage feast, the, supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb uh, in heaven. Uh, and it's going to take place around this time. Uh, and it's going to go from the end of the tribulation period and the celebration time is going to go into the millennial reign of Christ. But there's three stages, Okay. And the three stages are exactly the same thing that we saw. The betrothal. The betrothal period for us is salvation. Okay? The second that we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we're saved, we are engaged, we are betrothed to Christ. The presentation that is, uh, and feast that takes place is the rapture of the church. When the church is raptured out, we are presented to, in the Father's home to uh, the groom there. And we go through all of that, prepare, getting, being, being prepared and all that kind of stuff. The judgment seat of Christ and everything else that goes <clears throat> with this. All right, And the idea is that John says here, "...his bride has made herself ready." Of course, we understand that we can't do anything to make ourselves ready. God has to do it in our salvation. And then the works that he produces through us, they say, he says here, the fine linen of the righteous deeds of the saints is what we're clothed in is the righteous deeds that we do because God works through us, the Holy Spirit works through us and clothes us in that. And then the church is now ready, what he says here, the church is now ready for the ceremony and the marriage supper of the Lamb. The ceremony will conclude with the start of the millennial kingdom and the supper stretched through the thousand year reign with the final consummation happening on the new earth. When we get to the new heaven and the new earth, that'll be the end of it. Okay? So the angel going through that lays that out. That's what we're going to go through for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Says, write this down, John. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, who is this? Who's invited? To the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, it can't be the church, can it? Because the church is the bride, right? So that's not inviting us. But who's invited? Those who are invited, those who are the honored guests, are the Old Testament saints that will be there. You see, the bride of Christ is only the church. The Old Testament saints are the guests. They'll be a part of that. They'll uh, be able to enjoy in the festivities of that. And the big takeaway from all of this is that God will be in personal fellowship with all of the redeemed saints for all time, for all eternity. At this point, the point that's being made is that God will dwell with man, and man will dwell with God. We will, we will be with him for all of eternity. Okay. This is so significant, yet so amazing, that John actually is amazed by what he's hearing, trying to put pit. And piece all this stuff together that the angel looks at him and and says in his vision here, he says, These are true words of God. (laughs) I ain't lying. I'm telling you the truth. Hey, listen, if you don't believe me, (laughs) these words come from God, okay? Believe God. Trust Him, all right? Don't, Don't believe me here. I mean, John was overwhelmed. He was so overwhelmed that in that moment, he caught himself falling to his knees from what he heard from the angel and started worshiping the angel for the message that was given to him, all right? Started worshiping the angel. Now, very important, I want you to take note of what the angel does. The response of the angel immediately immediately probably in shock don't do that (laughs) don't do that why because angels are not worthy of worship they know that we have uh, in our society today uh, a big movement of angel worshiping taking place and he says do not worship me only absolutely only God is worthy of worship. And we see this pattern happen many times in scriptures where, where people have bowed down to worship with, uh, angels unaware. And every single time the response is the same. Get up. Don't do that. And what does he say? He says to him, I am a servant just like you. We are servants of God. And listen, Angels are not to be worshipped. Angels are not to be prayed to. Angels are not to be elevated to any status. They are the servants of God like we are the servants of God. True, genuine worship only goes to God, period. All right, that's all. So we need to make sure that we... understand that. And he gives a reason here which is really interesting. He concludes with the section by telling John to remember that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What, is that, what does that mean? The point of the statement is to emphasize that Christ is the center of prophecy. In other words, The heart of prophecy is not about what happens to man in the future or what events will take place in the future. Rather, it's about Christ, his role, and his worship. The idea here is that as we look at the things of the future is what is Christ Where is he? Who is he? How is he elevated? He is worthy of worship. We follow God's control in all of this and we worship God and we worship Christ because he is God uh, and we don't worship anyone else and he is the central focus of this bringing honor and glory to him. Everything is to bring honor and glory to God throughout all of this. Okay. So any questions on the marriage supper of the Lamb? Nate? uh, Be invited? Yes. They will not be the bride. So, yeah, we can include them in the ones who will be uh, invited in that. Yes. Absolutely. Good question. Any other questions? All right, we're doing good. You're holding on. We might get through chapter 19 here. So, now the marriage of the supper of the Lamb is taking place. Everything is set. Everything is set. For Jesus to come back. The second coming. We see the second coming of Jesus. Okay. Now, as we venture into this section, verses eleven through twenty-one, we need I need to emphasize and need to stress to you that what is being taught here in verses eleven through twenty-one is the second coming of Christ. This is not the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is a separate event, happens at the beginning of the tribulation period. What is happening here is at the very tail end of the tribulation period, after the battle of Armageddon, well actually during the battle of Armageddon, is the second coming of Christ. Okay? When Christ comes to free Israel because uh, the Antichrist has turned on her uh, and he wipes everyone out, this is his second coming as he comes to the earth. We will try to mark out some differences to show you some differences here between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. So when Jesus comes in his first advent... Uh, which is Christmas, we celebrate that at Christmas, he came as a baby, he came as a savior. At his second advent, which is the second coming when he comes to earth, at this second coming, he's coming as a conquering king. Okay, Huge difference. All right, When he comes at the rapture, which, is, uh, which happens seven years before this, he comes only to come and take his bride home. Is what he does. He doesn't even come to the earth, he comes to the sky, the Bible says. It's one of the main key differences with the rapture and the second coming of Christ, is that the rapture, Jesus comes in the sky, second coming, Jesus comes all the way to the earth. Okay? So the rapture is not the second coming of Christ. It's an event that happens separate uh, to that. But a lot of times when you talk to people, you're going to hear them mix the rapture and the second coming of Christ and put it all in one, saying that's the second coming of Christ. That is not accurate, okay? The rapture is not the second coming of Christ. The, The rapture is Christ coming for His bride. The second coming of Christ happens here at the end of the tribulation period, okay? So we have in verses 11 through 13, we have the return Let's look at verses 11 through 13 of chapter number 19. He says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Those are titles, those are names. Okay, those are names given to Christ who's sitting on that. But that's, uh, I want you to see that because I want you to see that those are capitalized if you're, if you're able to look at them in Scripture. Those are names given to Christ. All right, And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So we see here... Jesus coming from the sky now again as I've already mentioned to you the rapture of the church is Jesus coming for his bride here at the second coming he's coming to conquer the earth and to set up his millennial kingdom now it's interesting John starts off here by saying the heavens are open he made that claim one other time in chapter 4 when when John was translated into heaven the heavens were open so John could go into heaven this time the heavens are open so Jesus can come out (laughs) he's coming out of heaven coming down uh, to the earth all right the time has come for christ to be revealed as king and to receive the kingdom that was promised to him by the father as jesus rode in jerusalem uh, on crucifixion week he came in humbly on a donkey this time he returns in power and glory on a white horse The white horse was traditionally uh, known uh, in that culture uh, of the victorious Roman generals who would ride on these white horses after a a victorious campaign. They would have um, parades in the city of Rome and big huge parades This showed great victory there. Same thing symbolizes here the victory of Christ uh, as well as it symbolized the perfect spotless and absolute holy character of Jesus of the rider of this. Now, in this passage there's much symbolism that we see here. We see the crowns, we see the sword, we see the rod of iron, and we see the wine press as we go through this. All of these are symbolic symbols that represent the royalty, majesty, and power of Christ when he comes. What is not symbolic is Christ's return. Jesus will come back. He will come back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We know that for fact some even suggest and possibly right, that even the horse that he's riding on is symbolic of, of victory there that he won't even be on a horse maybe maybe not but um, there's no reason to to think that he wouldn't be on a horse you know um, I kind of feel that yeah he'll, he'll be on a horse because uh, of the picture that's given with him riding on the donkey going into Jerusalem him coming as a conquering king on a white horse there I don't know. It's not going to be that big of a point. He's still going to be the conquering king whether he's on a horse or not. So, okay, nothing to quibble about. So I don't want you elbowing me in heaven going, He ain't on no horse, Pastor Mike. You know, Sorry. Anyways. So John describes Jesus uh, as being faithful and true. Titles, names for Jesus because Jesus is always faithful and he is truth. And so, great titles there. John continues as he describes, stating that Jesus is the warring king who righteously wages war against his enemies. And we are then again drawn to Christ's absolute righteous and holy judgment. He is absolutely right and holy to exact judgment on sinful man. So John focuses first on Christ's uh, personal appearance as the mighty, awesome rider. He says his eyes are a flame of fire. That's talking about the justice that, it, that he has, but also the fact that nothing is hidden from him, that Jesus comes in holy judgment. It says that he wore many diadems. The idea here is a ruling crown, a kingly crown. And the many that are there, the plurality shows that he has absolute and complete authority over everything. There's not anything that he doesn't have authority over. That's why the many crowns are given. He has authority over all of the universe there. Okay? Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and will reign forever. Then John notices a name written on Christ. says this name is written that nobody knows except Jesus himself. And guess what? We still don't know it. (laughs) It's not given to us. The name that that is written on him there, uh, no one knows. And I don't know if it will be revealed as he comes, but only Jesus knows that name and then John now takes note of what Jesus is wearing. His garments, he says, are dipped in blood. Well, Jesus is coming now to the battle of Armageddon and his second coming to, to war against this. But why in the world would his, would his garments be dipped in blood or be splattered with blood already? The picture here is this, is that this isn't Christ's first battle. Christ has been fighting for us and on, be, on our behalf for all of our, all through time there. Of course, the first and most uh, significant victory was the cross, wasn't it? Okay, where he, where he won our salvation. So I think all of that is symbolism to picture that victory there and His fight for us and this, that, he, that He has fought many battles for us. But the key to that is, is, listen, this will be the very last one. This will be the last fight, the last battle. Um, and then it says that he, he's wearing a sash, if you will, and he's called the word of life, a great picture of who Jesus is, just proving of who he is. So we see Jesus coming in the sky. Now, when Jesus comes at the rapture of the church, Jesus comes alone. And he's in the sky and we hear the trump of God, the, the, the call of the archangel. And those who are dead in Christ will rise and those who are alive will meet him in the air. We'll get a glorified body and be changed and taken into heaven. However, when Jesus comes back at his second coming, he doesn't come alone. He brings somebody with him. Let's see who he brings with him in verse number 14. Verse 14, and he says, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Who is this group that comes with him at uh, his second coming? These people are defined as having fine linen, white and clean. In other words, they're wearing white robes. So who is given white robes? The church-age saints are given white robes. Guess what? We come back with Jesus, and we're going to go to the Battle of Armageddon. Are you ready? And so here's the thing. Since Jesus gets a horse, I want a horse too. Now, if Jesus doesn't have a horse, I don't get one either, but that's okay. But it says that we come with him in the air on white horses as well, showing the victory and stuff like that. All right. So the primary group that John is describing here is the church. Which is the army that returns with Christ to the the great battle of Armageddon and his second coming. All right. Now, there's no doubt that the church is in view. However, some have suggested that it could be even more than. Uh, the church I, I don't necessarily disagree I have some thoughts on this a little bit different than this but it's all, it could be as well as not only the church saints so my point in telling you this is that it is definitely the church saints that come back with Jesus it could possibly be the tribulation saints because they do eventually get white robes as well uh, it could be the Old Testament saints as well because they are resurrected at the end of the tribulation period my question was with that is are they resurrected yet or not uh, because we're not completely done with the tribulation we still have this battle to take place so there's a question there Um, and it could be also the holy angels which that could be as well it could be all of them uh, part of them the only thing that I know by the description that's given here is that I'm positive that it's the church age saints that will come back with Jesus for the battle of Armageddon we get to come back there's no reason to say that these others can't just determining on the timing and, and whatever there but it's possible they will as well now how many of you Knowing that Jesus is on our side, is ready to come back at the battle of Armageddon and kick some butt. Right? Guess what? We don't get to. Sorry. As a matter of fact, um, we may have horses, but we have no weapons. (laughs) Um, Because we don't need to have any weapons. Because, quite frankly, Jesus doesn't need our help. (laughs) But we are there uh, as a picture of His great glory of his great victory. Uh, we are there, you know, just to be a, a part of it, to, to show. And then we are we are coming down, of course, to be a part of his new millennial kingdom uh, in that. But there will, and so it'll be interesting, but we, we will just be spectators there. And then so verse number 15 through 16, we see as we move on here that the rule of Jesus being the conqueror, we see here the rule that is taking place. So again, the rapture, Jesus returns back to heaven with the the church-age saints, but here Jesus comes to the earth and sets up his rule as king of kings and lord of lords on the earth. And so this is vividly described to us here in verses 15 and 16, and he says this, from his mouth, as Jesus is coming now uh, down on his white horse, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his, robe, uh, on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we're at the Battle of Armageddon. Jesus is in the sky on his horse. We, are, we got his back because we know there's not going to be any trouble there. <laughs> and the Bible says that out of his mouth... It comes a sword. Of course that's symbolic and that's a picture of the fact of the power of the very word of God, the very word of Jesus speaking. Jesus is coming to the battle of Armageddon The Antichrist, the false prophet, everybody is ready to wage war. Their their first target is Israel. They want to destroy Israel. But then Jesus comes to rescue Israel in the sky. Everybody turns towards Jesus Christ. They're going to fight now Jesus Christ. Coming in, it's going to be this big battle. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that are there ready. All these weapons of war ready to aim. All these things ready to go. And guess what? No one even fires a shot. Why? Because Jesus speaks. And when Jesus speaks, they fall. That's it. That's the. It's like watching you know a boxing match where the guy comes out and the first swing he knocks the guy out and it's all, I mean you know you you bought pay per view to watch this thing and the guy's already out and you're like what's going on? I mean that's just basically it. Jesus comes in and he speaks. I don't know what he says. Whatever he says, wipes them out. All of them, devastated. So Jesus will simply speak. And he will strike down the nations. Who will be dead? Well, the dead will be the following. All gathered in the valley of Megiddo for the battle of Armageddon. We talked about that. All of those will be dead. But listen, every unredeemed person on the earth will die when Jesus speaks. Every lost person on the earth at that point when Jesus speaks around the globe will instantly die. Be dead. He wipes out the earth of all sinfulness, alright? This um, has been called, uh, and we see this more in Matthew 25 here, uh, given uh, to us as the judgment of the nations, or the separating of the sheep and the goats. In the back of your notes, I want you to pull out this little chart that, that you have here. <clears throat> How many of you, when you take that out and look at it in the back uh, uh, there, go, hey, I've seen this before. Does anybody remember this? Way, way, way back, 100 years ago in the beginning when we started this, I gave you this little handout. However, are you ready? Are you sitting down? I was wrong on just one thing. And... uh in my studies, I've come to realize, I never really knew where to put this. I always put this at the white throne judgment of God. But as I've studied and gone through this time, I have learned that it is right here at the very end of the tribulation period of what is known as the separation of the sheeps and the goats. Okay, It's not at the white throne judgment. It is, it is right here at the end here. This is called the judgment of the nations. Uh, Matthew 25 talks about the fact that that the nations are gathered. The, those who are lost are wiped out by christ they are the goats they go to hell and those who are alive and remain are saved they go into the millennial kingdom uh that's the sheep all right so in matthew 25 we won't read all of it but let me go get to matthew 25 verse 31 well someone moved matthew in my bible Uh, Jesus is speaking here, talking about the end of time. He says that when the Son of Man comes in His glory, that's the second coming, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him He will gather all the nations and He will separate people one from another uh, and as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right and the, but the goats on the left and then as he goes through that he explains that the sheep will go into their kingdom into the reward which is the millennial kingdom and eventually the heavenly kingdom they'll go all the way through the millennial kingdom into heaven new heaven and new earth and the goats will be cast into hell okay and so that is where that takes place. So you have this revised. So go ahead in your notes, if you kept them, you got the, the one all the way at the front, just tear that baby out, shred it, and put this baby in its place, okay? So, there. So at the end of the tribulation period, when Christ comes to fight the battle of Armageddon and he wipes out all of the lost on the earth, the, the, those who are lost go immediately to hell, and those who are alive and remain that are saved, they go into the tribulation period. Uh, Extended tribulation period. No, they go into the millennial reign of Christ, where Jesus rules and reigns. Okay. Any questions on that? You understand that? Okay. All right. <clears throat> this is the final stroke of death in the day of the Lord. This quick and final judgment sets the patterns for Christ's rule in the millennium. So this. This sets him up as king of kings and lord of lords. He is so powerful, he is so almighty, he is so much king that he speaks and all the lost die. Which means that when he moves into the millennial king, set up as king, that's the authority of the king that we serve. That's the authority of the king that we have. Which means that he's also t- told here as, he, as we go on that he will rule with the rod of iron. This means that any sin that happens in the millennial kingdom will be dealt with swiftly and will be dealt with fiercely. John gives us the imagery of the wine press uh, to express the swiftness and fierceness of Jesus' rule. Now, every person that goes into the millennial kingdom is saved, but not perfect. Okay, We are already been raptured. We've already been given our glorified bodies. We are already glorified. We will not sin. But those who go physically into the millennial kingdom have the potential to sin, and they still will. And those that sin will be dealt with swiftly and fiercely, more than likely, will lose their life. Now, they're saved. They'll be in heaven, okay, uh, there, but they will not live through the millennial kingdom. Kingdom, all right. Sin will be swiftly and fiercely stomped out, meaning that it will be completely taken care of. All right. So this speaks to Christ's unyielding and absolute government, where man is required to conform to His righteous standards. To emphasize this, John sees the banner that goes over Jesus' shoulder and thigh. We talked about that. that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and this title expresses His sovereign and absolute rule. So we see now. The victory, the absolute victory that takes place. And we'll talk more about the rule of Christ in the millennium when we get to next week in the chapter, tw- or the week after, you're not going to be, we're not going to be here next week, remember, okay? Week after, when we get into chapter 20, talking about the millennial kingdom. So we'll get more into that, how he's going to rule, what that's going to look like, how that's going to play out in chapter 20. Right now, though, we see the complete end of the battle of Armageddon, absolute victory that takes place here, all right? Uh, in verse 17 we see, Then I saw an angel stand in the sun with, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly. I hope you haven't had dinner yet. Hold on. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast... And the king of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and the almighty army and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs which he deceived. Those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged. Gorged? On their flesh. So we see here the conclusion, the absolute victory of what I just said, Jesus speaking and them all dying. He breaks it down more to let us see what's actually going to happen a little bit more. A vivid picture of the battle of again. This angel, he says, is standing in the sun. It's not the idea the angel's actually in the sun. It's that the angel's in the sky with the sun behind the angel. Uh, you know, so we would say if it passes in front of, passes in the sun, you know, that's what he's talking about there. And the angel commands... All of the birds of the earth, now, all of the birds of the earth, I don't know, parakeets, I don't know, cockatoo, I don't know that they actually eat meat, but they will here. They'll eat flesh. Do they? Okay. Okay. I didn't know what, you know, I just, you know, all of them can do that. Good. You bird people know. I don't know. I stay away. All right. So they come and they eat. And so everybody dies. The, body, the corpses are on the ground. They're all wiped out. The birds come. This is where we see the picture that was given. Remember the blood flows to the height of the bridle of the horse, the tearing of the flesh, and all this kind of stuff there. Um, that's all the birds come and consume the bodies they, uh, and eat up the bodies. But we see something very important here as well. We see that the Antichrist and the false prophet are seized by God, and they are cast into the lake of fire now we'll see that terminology come again in the latter part of chapter number 20 but the lake of fire is the final hell okay um so just to let you know um heaven and hell have gone through over over the periods different renovations different times uh there so um and and so uh, we won't probably go into all of that but right now where those who die go to hell we call it hell uh, it's just a waiting place for the lake of fire. Now the conditions are the same as what we recognize hell to be. Uh, it's torment, it's fire, it's, it's like Gehenna uh, there that, that Jesus talked about there and stuff like that. But when you get to the lake of fire, it's just that much worse and heaven and, or hell and all the dead go into the lake of fire. So we see here that the Antichrist and, and the false prophet are the first two to get their final eternal resting place in the lake of fire. That's where they go. They're there. Eventually, this is where Satan will be cast as well. All right. And so we see here that they're cast into the lake of fire. And then, with the word of his mouth, Jesus slaughters every unbeliever. The birds consume them. The battle of Armageddon is finished. And so is the wrath of God in the tribulation period. That's the end. The 21 judgments of God through the tribulation period, the uh, freedom of Satan uh, and his demons to do whatever they want, um, the wickedness of the heart of man who will not repent, uh, and then the death of all who are lost. As Jesus comes as King of kings and Lord of lords, he now wipes them out. They are dead. The birds feast on on the corpses there, and Jesus now is ready to come to the earth and establish his millennial kingdom. And we will pick that up in two weeks on his millennial kingdom. Any questions or comments? So, you know, I think quite honestly, because it it just tells us when it is. When does the marriage supper of the Lamb happen? Yeah, I would say it's probably after the battle of Armageddon because it goes into the millennial kingdom there and continues through the millennial kingdom, all of that. Yeah. Yeah, we celebrate. Yeah. Jesus doesn't throw any small parties. So, no, that's good. Steve. He'll be, when Jesus returns, he'll be returning in, at the Middle East, the Valley of Megiddo, where the Battle of Armageddon will be. That He'll be coming in that, right there. The Bible says that his second coming, Zechariah gives us a picture of it, where he comes to the Mount of Olives. And, and we kind of talked about this earlier, that one foot steps on the Mount of Olives, and, and Crushes the Mount of Olives, the others in the sea, and and the power of God and all that. Basically, the earth is is transformed uh, because of the mighty earthquake that takes place. All of that happens when he comes. The point is, is that at Jesus' second coming, he does come to the earth. Um, Jerusalem will be the capital of of where he will rule and reign the world. We'll see that in the millennial kingdom when we get there in chapter twenty. So yes, that's that's where he comes. That's where he is. So. Um, Everybody will know. Yes, everybody, uh, you know, it'll be supernatural. I don't know how that that will be. I, I don't think satellite TV will play a part in that, so. <laughs> the earth is flat? Ah, uh, I don't, ah, uh, I'll let you, that, there's a big debate about that going on right now, man, so you, you can, you can be on whatever side you want, my friend. Uh, as a, Actually, uh, when we get to a uh, I actually deal with that a little bit here in the upcoming two weeks. We'll see what what happens with that. So absolutely. Any other statements, comments, concerns? Um yes and no. So the, the white throne judgment is only for the lost, okay? But they're not judged yet. They will be judged at the great white throne judgment. There's a lot of things that go into that. Uh, they're in hell, which is, so hell is the waiting period, and they will be, have a reprieve from hell to go to the white throne judgment. That's the only time they have a reprieve, so that hell and the lost will be thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, the, the, there'll be a transition there uh, into that. But, uh, no, uh, so the Christians are judged uh, there, um, and there's no judgment necessarily for the Old Testament saints. they all already have be in heaven and, and glory, but the great white throne judgment, the lost will stand there, um, and they will be judged based upon what they do in their life. Okay, um, I don't want to give it too much away, but basically that will determine the level of hell they will be in because there are levels in hell. So Yes. Heaven yeah, so I've gone to prepare a place for you and then when I come and when I prepare the place I'll come again. Heaven is a waiting place uh, as of right now where we will be we will be with God where wherever that is, whatever that will be. But when all of the eternity is done through the Millennial Kingdom, there will be a new heaven and a new earth that, that will become part of that, with a new Jerusalem that will be a part of that, a brand new uh, creation, if you will, uh, uh, through that and stuff like that. But yes, the, Paul said that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So heaven is where the Lord is, where God is on His throne there um, and stuff. So yes, um, we, we are with, with Him there. Now there are some who teach... What's what's known as soul sleep, uh, but I don't believe the Bible teaches that. What they what they believe is that your body goes into the grave and your spirit goes back to the Father. But basically, your spirit goes back to the Father. If, if, this is really weird terminology, but this is kind of give you a mental picture. Your soul and spirit go back to the Father. You're not conscious. You're putting a jar on the shelf until, uh, we come back, until He comes back, and then He reunites your spirit and body with your glorified body when He comes back there. But you're not conscious. You have no idea what's going on during, during that time. Um, i don't see that in scripture anywhere but there are people that pull verses out of context to do that paul said that the last breath here on earth that he takes his very next breath he'll be with the father in heaven i'm going to hold on to that one so okay any any other questions comments this is good i appreciate it all right quick going ahead all right let's pray Let's pray. Father God, you're so good to us. Thank you for our time tonight uh, for this study. Thank you for the love of these people. Thank you for their love for your word. And Lord, I just pray now your perfect will be done. Take us uh, now to go home safely and to come back to worship you on Sunday. Father, I pray for BBS next week. I pray that you would just bless it. pray for a great number of kiddos and I pray for our workers and, and all that's going on there. Bless them, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you.